0: Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, Warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. Mark Twain famously said, Too much of anything is bad, but too much of good whiskey is barely enough. I couldn't agree more. I'm going to paraphrase a little and say that too much of anything is bad, but too much bias is abysmal. The weight women carry, that big old bag of bias, is heavy, especially when you have to jump over all those hurdles all the time. It can be daunting. So here's the thing. I know some of you are thinking, oh, come on, things have gotten so much better, And I do agree in many ways they have. I mean, women are crushing it on so many levels, but the reality is that women are often unaware or fail to see or believe that they have been a victim of discrimination or bias or that discrimination or bias is part of what creates some of the barriers to advancement. With all the diversity initiatives that have emerged, especially over the past decades, all the empowerment language that we talked about so much in last week's podcast, it's often argued that women have worked hard to take gender out of the equation, so maybe we should just stop talking about it. But here's the thing. The biases are there, whether we believe or not, whether we talk about them or not. They're there and they're creating barriers. Talking about bias isn't about complaining or victim mentality. It's about identifying the problems and the patterns of bias that are creating barriers. And this is very, very critical for women and organizations. It's critical for women because, as we talked about a lot last week, and as the mantra from last week reminds us, we need to remember, it's not your fault, but it is your problem. But it's also critical for organizations and leaders in general to hear. We can't disrupt the status quo if we don't talk about what needs to change. Of course, understanding the reality of the problem helps us create more meaningful and effective strategies for transcending those barriers and, in some cases, removing those barriers, interrupting those barriers. With our time together today, what I'd like to do is talk about some of the most common patterns of bias. Some of the most supported in the scientific literature, the most reflective of the reported lived experience of women, bias that has emerged from decades of research into understanding the experience of women and women trying to advance, especially high level talented women, women wanting to advance in those domains that have been typically and traditionally male dominated. And we're all familiar with those areas areas like business and law. Academia, politics, the STEM fields, the industries where we see a good representation of women, oftentimes in the mid levels because of some of the advances we've had over the years. But then we see that kind of broken pipeline where we don't see representation at those top level, top tier, high pay, high prestige, you know, seat at the table type of roles. More than a half century ago, Simone de Beauvoir said, quote, this has always been a man's world and none of the reasons that have been offered an explanation has seemed adequate representation of the world like the world itself is the work of men they describe it from their own point of view which they confuse with the absolute truth end quote that is so profound and when we turn to the literature the kinds of studies i do the kinds of studies that others do in this field of advancing women and leadership is to create a representation that includes and highlights the viewpoints of women as well. The narrative surrounding leadership and what defines an ideal leader is deeply gender biased. The advice given to women to overcome workforce barriers is often focused on women leaders either behaving more masculine or at the very least, being seen as less feminine in their leadership style. And when I talk about masculine and feminine, I'm referring to the kind of stereotypical traits that are often looked at and discussed and talked about when we talk about leaders and we talk about gender and we talk about the ways in which men and women behave or should behave. This language can be subtle. Things like women being described as lucky when positive outcomes result from their leadership, while men with similar outcomes, are often described as skilled and highly competent. Language is a tricky thing, but it's very impactful. Even a compliment, seemingly positive, can be damaging if it's part of a pattern that perpetuates stereotypes and bias. A great example of this is sports. There's a lot of studies that show that certain athletes... Are described differently in the media. So, for example, when quarterbacks of color are described positively in the media, there's a lot of words like natural talent, you know, innate athletic skills that are used, whereas white quarterbacks are more likely to be described as hardworking and intelligent. Now, this is tricky, again, because both of these are compliments. You can see someone arguing, I said you had a lot of natural talent. I said you were excellent with your athletic skills, and so how is that in any way biased or not positive? But over time, the messaging has an impact on how people think about athletes of color. It starts to perpetuate this idea that maybe one group is lucky and the other group is earning. And we see very similar things happening with women and the way women are often described. So we can compliment women on being nurturing and supportive. But when we simultaneously are talking about how smart and capable men are over time, we can in fact reinforce biases. And it really becomes problematic when you consider the attributes that tend to be most valued in organizations. When people are making those decisions to move candidates into top leadership roles or hire people into those top leadership roles, nobody talks about putting the nurturing, supportive person into that leadership role. And so you can see how the cumulative of that type of narrative can, in fact, help perpetuate some of these stereotypes and create barriers. It's a little bit like a bee sting, right? You get one bee sting, you're probably okay. But after being stung over and over and over, you might find that you're in trouble. And this type of uh, subtle language, this type of difference of communication that's often present in the way women and men are described and leaders are described and you know what is the ideal trait of a leader those can be problematic over time as well so let's get right into some of these biases okay i'm going to start with the work of joan williams which has inspired and guided so much of my research and the research of so many other scholars who look at women's advancement and how we can help create a more equitable workforce landscape My journey into the study and advocacy of advancing women was inspired from Joan Williams' work. I cannot strongly urge anyone interested in advancing women enough to read Joan Williams' work. Her 2006 publication, Opt Out or Pushed Out, How the Press Covers Work-Family Conflict, was the catalyst for so much of my work and research and the work of so many who want to create an equitable landscape where both men and women can thrive professionally. About five years ago, Williams conducted one of the most extensive in-depth studies exploring high-performing professional women and their perceived barriers in attaining success at the highest echelons. She was looking into, you know, rainmakers in law firms and uh, top-level executives in corporate America and tops of their field in STEM and uh, media industries. And what's notably great about the research uh, Williams did—it was actually Williams and Dempsey from 2014—is they interviewed about 130 women, but about 50. 50- of the women that they interviewed identified as women of color. And that's really notable because so much of the research on professional women fails to include the experience of women in color. And Williams and Dempsey wanted to ensure that the research they collected and the data they collected was reflective of the lived experience of all women navigating the pipeline. After conducting intensive interviews and consolidating data from hundreds of existing relevant studies, Williams and Dempsey identified four patterns that provide a concise framework for the extensive list of biases and variables and unique challenges women battle in navigating organizational politics and advancement because navigating organizational politics is a very different experience for women than it is for men often. So we're going to be talking about each of these biases in depth in upcoming podcasts and exploring the best practice strategies to help navigate and transcend these biases. As you hear these four patterns of bias, I would ask you to ask yourself if they sound familiar. Does this feel like it rings true for you? So the four biases are prove-it-again bias, the maternal wall, the tightrope bias, and the tug-of-war bias. Let's start with prove it again. Prove it again is a bias pattern where women must prove their competency and ability over and over again, much more so than their male counterparts. Now, this is not to say that men don't have to prove themselves. They absolutely do. But what the research suggests is that women have to prove themselves much more often. So men have to prove themselves. Women have to prove themselves again and again. And women of color express the perception of needing to prove themselves over and over and over again. And the question is, why does this happen? And the answer is, honestly, it can be for many different reasons. Uh, The research shows that men are often judged on potential, whereas women are judged on achievement. So in hiring, you're more likely to take a chance on a male candidate who isn't necessarily proven, but is seen as having potential. And you are less so apt to do so with a woman. So in the hiring process, this is true of job hopping as well, which is really interesting. Job hopping can work very well for men. It can be an excellent strategy to bump their salary up fairly quickly. Men who a few years after receiving an MBA, take a job and then job hop a few years later, see big boosts in their salary. They see large gains. This is not at all the case for women. Women don't see that happening, and prove it again as part of the explanation why. So, women do better when they stay put because, again, they've proved it. And if they go somewhere new, no one's going to look at their potential or what they've done before. They're going to have to prove it again and again and again. So, it's more… Beneficial for a woman to stay put. But then again, she doesn't see the kinds of bumps that men who move within different uh, jobs within their industry see. And this has very negative consequences on women's advancement. And it contributes to the gender pay gap, which kind of follows women throughout our careers. So there's also this casuistic bias that's part of it. And casuistry is just when decisions and organizations are made with some kind of questionable reasoning, but kind of made as though they're based on extremely objective principles or rules. You know, a lot of meritocracy principle, right? It's, it's hire the best person, promote the best person, that type of uh, thinking. And again, there's nothing wrong with that type of thinking. The problem is, is the unconscious biases that people have that they don't even realize that can impact the process which causes this kind of casuistry. People believe they are using this objective criteria when in reality, they may be modifying the criteria as a result of unconscious gender bias. And there's actually a lot of support for this bias in the research. Um, There was a well-cited study, a Princeton University study, where researchers created a resume for two fictitious job applicants. One was better educated, the other had more relevant professional work experiences. The researchers gave the resume to study participants asking which candidate they would hire, varying the gender of the applicants. So sometimes it was better educated female, more experienced male, sometimes more experienced female, better educated male. You get the idea. Then there was a control group where gender was left ambiguous. So without knowing the gender, 78% of the participants in the control group who did not know the gender chose the candidate from the two resumes with more education. They clearly and overwhelmingly identified education as the most important variable in selecting a candidate. When gender was made explicit, though, a bias pattern emerged. When the better educated candidate was male, the control group pattern held as you would expect it to. 75% chose the better educated male candidate over the female with more work experience, which makes sense since 78% of the control group also prioritized education. But when the genders were switched and the female had more education, only 43% selected the woman with more education. Yes, unfortunately, you heard me right. In summary, All groups gave less weight for a qualification when a woman had the qualification. And so when we sit and we create criteria for hiring and promoting and we think, well, these are objective measures and they're the same for everyone because the reality is based on the research that the qualities that are most valued are often the qualities that the male candidate brings, whichever they are. There are other explanations supporting a prove again bias for women. Research shows that when men make mistakes, they're often attributed to luck, while women's are contributed to lack of skill and vice versa. So, you know, oh, he was just unlucky when the business didn't do well. Um, you know, he's really a strong leader, but, you know, this mistake was because he was taking risks, those types of things. And achievement is the opposite. When men are, um, acknowledged for their achievements, it tends to have a very um, skill-related explanation. You hear things like, oh, everything they touch just turns to gold. Often the opposite is true for women whose successes and achievements are too often attributed to luck or good market conditions. Another aspect of the prove-it-again bias relates to how the workplace responds to mistakes made by men versus when women make mistakes. Research supports a bias where men's mistakes are more quickly forgotten and often result in minimal professional capital damage versus mistakes made by women, which tend to have a more lasting impact on their professional capital. And I think if you really think about experiences you've had, you can probably think of times where that was true. I was thinking about a few months ago, a situation that happened at my work where a male employee was upset about something that had happened, was screaming and swearing and really letting our boss know that they were bothered by what had happened. If that had been a woman in her office screaming and swearing and threatening and emotional so that everyone could hear, I think there would have been significant consequences. There would have been significant damage to their professional capital. And there was no damage to this man's professional capital. But if that had been a woman, not only would she have probably gone home, if that was me, I would have gone home and said, oh, I cannot believe I lost it like that. People are going to think I'm unhinged. I'm going to be the crazy woman who can't keep it together. And I probably would have seen some kind of fallout from the behavior. So let's move to the second pattern, the maternal wall. Again, like prove-it-again bias, the maternal wall pattern relates with descriptive bias as it relates to assumptions about women's competence and commitment after motherhood. How committed are they to their job? And prescriptive bias in terms of societal expectations of a mother's role in the home. Because of this, women with children are often pushed to the margins of the professional world, unofficially slow-tracked whether they ask for it or not, regardless of their commitment. We've all heard this too, okay? It's asked all the time. Women actresses are asked uh, at award shows, you know, questions that male actors would never be asked. Things like, how do you do it? How do you juggle it all? How do you balance your personal life? Actually, Kira Knightley was asked that and she, you know, kind of Replied back. Well, I hope you're going to ask all the male actors who are here that tonight. And, and we've heard it over and over. There's articles about you know talented women choosing to opt out and stay home with their children um, because they don't feel like they can have it all. And again, this is a tiny percentage of women statistically, but they really get an unfair share of the media hype. Then there's the can women have it all question. And every woman I know, I guarantee the warriors listening here today at some point, if you've tried to balance work and family, like men, like other women, like all of us trying to balance it all, you've heard, how do you do it? You know, a man, of course, can work full time and be a great dad. Society is much less confident that a woman can do that. And they let us know this all the time. We hear it all the time. Can women have it all? And it's funny because men never get asked that because, of course, we expect that men can have it all. One of my favorite lines from William and Dempsey's 2014 book, What Works for Women at Work, relates to the maternal wall. It was a lawyer they interviewed for the book, and she said, quote, I had a baby, not a lobotomy. And that's really... Very telling because there's this idea that all of a sudden you are this completely different person as though somehow after having the baby, you lost all your capabilities and skills, drive, ambition, and desire to still continue to thrive and advance in your career. And this is that reinforced stereotype that mothers need to be nurturing and family-oriented while women at work are cold and career-driven. Men are allowed to be both family-oriented and career-driven. Without question. This often leads to even more of the previous bias that prove it again, you know, where it's like, oh, you've had a baby and you still want to advance. Prove it again now and with a baby. Prove it. Prove that you're still committed. Prove that you're still talented. And so there's some intersectionality and overlap with some of these biases. In one study I conducted, so many women talked about this, how it is complicated by the fact that so many men advancing have wives who stay at home, while most women advancing also have a spouse or a partner who works full-time. So that's complicated, right? That really adds to the stress. When I interviewed women about this bias, they said things like, you know, and looking at executives, it's mostly men and their wives that stay at home and therefore they're able to put in the extra time. One woman said, quote, so none of the men I work with have a working wife and my husband works as well, end quote. So a lot of this goes back to the social cultural stereotypes, this homemaker breadwinner model uh, that people still kind of, think about, but just is not realistic in 21st century families, which look so different, which have two working parents, same-sex parents, single parents. There's a host of reasons why that model is just irrelevant right now. And yet so many of the social cultural expectations are based on that antiquated model. And it's interesting to note, the research shows not just only, not only a motherhood penalty, there's actually a fatherhood premium So how is that for a bias? You have children as a man and you are considered more committed and there's a premium for your value. And for women, the exact opposite is true. But don't worry, warriors. We will discuss strategies to combat the maternal wall moving forward in this podcast. Next pattern up, the tightrope pattern. So walking the tightrope is a perfect visual analogy for the balancing act so many women report that they have to engage in all the time. The tightrope bias pattern relates to prescriptive bias and assumptions of how women should behave. This is one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't dilemmas. It results in what's called the double bind barrier, where women who behave in traditionally feminine ways are not seen as having leadership qualities. But women who behave in ways seen as traditionally masculine are often disliked and seen as lacking social skills. It's having to choose too often between being seen as likable and being seen as competent. And it's exhausting. It's that frustrating feeling that you're either going to be seen as a nice person who's there to support others and be a team player or a competent bitch. Here again, we don't see this for men. am thinking of Movies like The Wolf of Wall Street, um, you know, Boiler Room, all the all the Wall Street kind of uh, movies that really show men who are dog eat dog and super aggressive and super win lose, and that scene is awesome, right? Wow, look at him! And then when a woman is portrayed in even a a little bit in that way, it's totally different. It's Working Girl or Mean Girls. It's all about cat fights and queen bees and backstabbing and this very different kind of narrative for very similar behaviors. Even sometimes women's behavior is not anywhere near the level that we see in some of the the movies and the storylines of men, but yet still there's that negative connotation associated with that type of behavior. Unfortunately, navigating the tightrope can lead women to adopt different strategies that ultimately divide them. When you start talking about you know how women need to behave, how women should behave, you get into these differences and, and sometimes it can divide women, which brings us to the fourth barrier, which is the tug of war bias pattern. This pattern relates to the strategies women implement to navigate that tightrope and even prove it again. It's that balance between kind of assimilating and resisting stereotypically masculine traits. It can lead women to begin to judge each other on the right way to be a woman and the right way to behave in the workforce. This is one of the saddest to think about because it contributes to so many stereotypical narratives that women don't support each other, that we're hard to work for or with. And it's important for us to address moving forward in this podcast because too often this bias against women causes conflict amongst women. And as warriors, we know intuitively that together we rise and thrive. So we have to be especially mindful of this one and how it can sneak in. It happens a lot too with intergenerational women. So, you know, women who navigated... Leadership 30 or 40 years ago had a different set of circumstances than potentially the women who are entering leadership roles today. And so they look at it from a different vantage point. And there's this idea of, well, I'm not going to do it that way, or I'm not going to do it this way. And you hear the older generation of women saying, well, part of the reason you're able to have those choices in front of you is because of the hard work I did. And I had to play the game to get ahead so that I could make it easier for you. So you wouldn't have to play the game as hard. And so all of these things create, you know, a complex system of circumstances that really lead to this perception that women don't help each other or they backstab, when what you really have is kind of a lobster's in the pot, right? The environment is conducive to very few women succeeding. And just like lobsters boiling in a pot, they don't want to climb on the back of the other lobster, but if the water's boiling, they're going to do what they have to to get ahead. And so there's so many social, cultural, but also organizational um, structures and barriers in place that can really perpetuate this this problem amongst women. And it's really very sad and disheartening because by nature, women are very supportive and really working to help other women thrive. As we talk about biases, we really need to consider first-generation versus second-generation gender bias. And what I mean by that, when I talk about first-generation gender bias, I'm talking about those intentional and visible acts of discrimination against women in society and in the workplace versus second-generation gender bias, which identifies the hidden or invisible biases in organizations. So decades ago, when women were told they weren't being hired because they were married, Or, you know, you're just going to end up having kids anyway, so we're not going to hire you. When women were called, hey, doll, in the office or, hey, doll, go grab me some coffee. It was bullshit, to be sure. Totally inequitable, unfair bias. But in some ways, at least those women knew it was not their fault, but it was their problem. They had a lot to carry in terms of the exhaustion, not to mention the emotional and financial hardship of that type of treatment and those types of decisions being made. But they didn't carry the blame that comes with being constantly told they had every opportunity. There was something at least honest about that gender bias, not like today where there's this kind of hoodwinking Jedi mind trick, you know, pay no attention to that bias or those circumstances, despite the fact that there are still plenty of barriers and biases that hold talented warrior women back, but they can be invisible or at least disguised. It's important to be mindful of these biases so we can recognize them and together on this podcast, we can address them. I'll be talking in my next podcast about the four P's advancement model, which I created to apply practical solutions to common workforce circumstances and interactions that will emerge as a result of these biases. Recognizing the patterns and biases is a critical component of that advancement model. So the manifest statement this week is this, you can't clean your house if you don't see the dirt. Seeing the barriers and the biases is the first step in transcending those barriers. Again, I really want to punctuate this. Identifying a problem and addressing it is very different from complaining about the problem. This is not a victim mentality. It's a warrior mentality. Identifying a complex problem and the patterns influencing the problem are crucial steps in creating an action plan to help you advance and thrive. For all you warriors listening who want to continue to transcend barriers and thrive, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So make sure to hit that subscribe button. You can also visit advancingwomenpodcast.com for more of my mantras and manifest statements, or to learn more about my four Ps advancement model. And please connect with me on Instagram at advancingwomenpodcast. I just want to thank my producer, Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast. It's totally badass and I love it. And a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Woman podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.